Subscribe to The Spectator magazine this Christmas and get the next 12 issues in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but you'll also receive a bottle of Tattinger champagne worth £42 to see you through to the new year. Join the party today at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was recently seen on social media being bundled out of an LSE lecture hall in the face of protests. This protest, she argues, is symptomatic of a new, modern type of anti-Semitism, which is percolated into Western society. The scenes resulted in calls by Priti Patel for a full investigation. Born in Israel, she is no stranger to conflict, recalling violence growing up and the consistent presence of military operations. This is a form of resilience that she would take into her later career. She left the country briefly as a Jewish emissary, working in Atlanta, Georgia, before returning to study law. Her political career soon beckoned, and she joined the centre-right party Likud in 2009, where she stayed for 11 years and went on to become Deputy Foreign Minister. In Parliament, where she was a youngest ever member, she was a staunch advocate for women's rights, chairing the Committee on the Status of Women and making waves for her campaigning tactics. Last year, her appointment as the first woman to ever become Israeli ambassador to the UK was met with protests from some British Jews. 800 of him signed a petition criticising her views on Palestine. But unfazed, she says that her role is diplomatic, not political, and about demonstrating that Israel is a long-term ally to the United Kingdom. My guest today is Zippy Hotovli. Now, Zippy, thank you so much for making the time today to come in for this podcast. To begin, we ask everyone the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? I had the most happiest childhood, I believe, because um, I'm the eldest and I have four brothers. So I was quite the queen of the family. <laughs> and it's uh, it's really a privilege to grow up in uh, Israeli childhood in the 90s. Women felt they can achieve anything. This is the way I was really educated. And my biggest role model was my mother that basically she said, you know, forget about restrictions or any borders, no borders, not even the sky's the limit. And just being grown up in in such a great atmosphere that you can do anything, can achieve anything, I think this is what motivated me to do what I'm doing. So um, it was fun. And also to live in Israel, it's fun. (laughs) And growing up, I mean, you're now a diplomat. uh, You had time in politics. (laughs) Did you have... um, what did you want to be when you were younger? We've had a, a range of strange ambitions on this podcast. Well, no, my ambitions were very simple. I want to be a journalist. And I, I really thought that journalism is a cool profession. And I had many role models in Israel. I wanted to finish PhD in law. I wanted to be able to have, uh, you know, the, the knowledge of, of, of a lawyer, but I wanted to be a journalist. As my husband always says, he, he said, I choose all the professions that have a really bad reputation. So say you started as a lawyer, you, you continued as a journalist, and then you ended up in politics. But now going to diplomacy, I think it makes the record higher. <laughs> now, I mentioned in the introduction that after finishing school, you went on to do what is effectively national service. Um, but you did that in America. Could you just explain to listeners kind of 
why that happens and then what you did. Sure. Well, one of the things that we do as a country, we really want to have a connection and a bridge to the other Jewish communities around the world. And America is the biggest Jewish community after Israel. And I was um, I was sent to, you know, help the kids to learn Hebrew, do a youth movement activities. And it was a very formative experience for me because when you're 18, you need to live in a different country and to learn different mentality and different lifestyle of Jew- other Jewish community really makes you you know look at the world in a broader perspective and uh, I, I think I took a lot from this experience to to my university years where I was doing many things overseas I was in Paris and in Australia South Africa like I was doing many things and then I became a deputy foreign minister and then traveling was part of my life so I think Part of what happened in the age of 18 that I learned to think about Israel as part of a global story of the world, not just, you know, an island. And when you were in America, did you have any like wild times, any road trips? <laughs> we had we had a great we had a great road trip in America and we used to we really used to take all the free time and American vacations to see the beautiful country that America is. And I want to use my time here as an ambassador to see the beautiful countryside you have, because I just told you that I experienced Scotland in the summer and it was really, really beautiful. So we, we want to see more. We, we love traveling. I, I would like to say I love hiking because I used to hike like in Nepal. We used to do some hiking, but some people will say that what I do as hiking is not a real hiking but uh, basically I love traveling yeah I'm not very good at hiking I also can't drive so <laughs> I'm quite a useless travel companion um, so you come back from America and you go and study law so at that point you're thinking you're going to be potentially a solicitor what, what's your no, no I want to be a journalist yes yeah, still <laughs> as I said why why did you decide to study were your parents saying you need to have a solid profession where you earn money because no, 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 lots I, of my friends do law for that no, reason no 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 I really thought that law is a fascinating field of studying and, and I love the fact that I, I have a law background and actually it's very helpful even when I do diplomacy and, and many of our politicians have a law background the most interesting thing is if you would have asked me what would be the last profession I will choose to be, it would have been politician. It was so much like against the very basic DNA, like the, the way politicians are perceived in all around the world, probably. I, I really wanted to have a field of research and then uh, to, to be a significant voice in Israeli you know, public arena. And then my life has changed. I was I was doing uh, television journalism and also writing to be a very big newspaper in Israel. And one day I received a phone call from Netanyahu's office. Netanyahu is our former prime minister. And he said he wants to meet me. So I said, fine, why not? He was a former prime minister. That day he was head of the opposition. Israel was in the middle of a very bad war. It was the second Lebanon war. And we had many discussions about what should be next, how we should address those issues. And it was basically a conversation between a politician and a, what was for him a journalist. But later on, I understood that the real place that things are happening is the political arena. And I've decided not to be a spectator, but actually to play the game. And I'm very happy I made this decision. I was 30. I was the youngest member of parliament those days. And I'm very happy I jumped into the very deep sea of Israeli politics. Um, you mentioned you were the youngest. Were you welcomed? What was it like when you, you, know, you, you entered parliament and what surprised you? 
Well, it's politics is nothing you, that you would have expected. Like there is a big, uh, I would say, surprises when you, when you get into the game. But I think one of the things you realize is that politics is a hard work, harder than it's perceived. And I will share with you a personal story. Uh, last, this Hanukkah, I was doing candlelighting with my family and my husband was looking at me and said, it's nice to have you on, on, on holidays. And I just realized that all my holidays was, you know, working outside, doing political activities, you know, being in the, in, in the political field. And you don't have too much family time, which is something that it's a big price you need to pay. And it's interesting in terms of your career, and we'll talk about the various aspects of it, but one of the things that you've been really noted for is your work in terms of women, uh, female politicians. Right now, we've got um, a lot of attention on Stella Creasy, who is a Labour MP who keeps bringing her baby to Parliament, also to spectator events. And you were one of the first Israeli politicians to have a baby while in Parliament, am I correct? Yes. How did you find that worked with your job? Because you're credited for modernizing Parliament to a degree. Yes, of course. So one of the things I, I did when, when, I, when I gave birth to my first, my eldest daughter, Mayan, was to turn my office into a baby room. <laughs> it was quite a big, a big story in Israel. Journalists came and wanted to take photos, not of the child, but just the idea of a parliamentary room becoming a nursery. And it was quite cool that the Speaker of Parliament was very supportive of that. He said, that's very good because as a parliamentarian, no one can, no one can replace you when you need to vote because the people elected you and you're the representative but I want it to be easier as, as possible for you to nurse your daughter if you're interested so I was every three hours there was a babysitter that came to help me with that and uh, I was every three hours going and feeding my baby and then going upstairs voting <laughs> and doing my uh, you know parliamentary job and doing my meetings and I, I thought it was very good and afterwards some women followed and I'm very happy and proud to say I was the first one to say this is something that can be part of parliamentary life. You mentioned your husband before we go further when I was uh, looking at research. I wouldn't say partner those days isn't it? Yeah maybe yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah partner we'll go with that but um, when I was looking at research you said your wedding had how many people there? 2,500 2,500? Yes, 2,500, yeah. Can you just explain By that? By the way, 2,000 were invited, 2,500 came. The 500 <laughs> uh, gate crashes. Yes, I, I, no, I basically said every, everyone can come. We did deliver some invitations. Um, when you're in politics, you're involved with big spectrum of groups that you, you, you really connected to. And one of the things, it was very big that I got married during Parliament. So um, we opened it to as many people that wanted to be happy with us on this very, very special day in our life. But for us as a couple, it wasn't, as you can imagine, very private. So I remember journalists coming and covering it. I didn't want any paparazzi, so we let everyone in. But my, my husband was the real hero of the event because it's not easy to be married to someone in politics and the fact that your wedding is being hijacked by you know people that you never met so he, he was happy to get along with it yes but we we had our small honeymoon later so okay. uh, it was nice <laughs> now I just want to talk a little bit about obviously you will move to frontline politics during that period in 2013 you became deputy minister for transportation national infrastructure and road safety and from then on you you get more senior roles so how was that moving from 
a role where you obviously enter parliament youngest to suddenly frontline, which I imagine is the case also in Israel, um, comes with a lot more scrutiny. My biggest role in politics was being the deputy foreign minister. And this is a thing I really loved. And I did that for four years. And the foreign minister was the prime minister. So I worked very closely with our prime minister. And one of the things I, I realized that how Israel is changing, because for many years, we were this small country in the Middle East, that everyone looked at it as a country in a conflict. But in a certain point, I would say in the beginning of the 2000s, Israel has become this amazing country that does technologies in the best way, and everyone wanted to come and share Israeli know-how. And one of the things I experienced during those years is leaders from all around the world coming to our foreign office, coming to the prime minister's office, and they all were interested in one thing, how to do more business with Israel, how to cooperate with Israel. I'm experiencing the same as an ambassador at the moment when just this week we had our foreign minister coming here and signing a very important and significant agreement with your foreign secretary, Liz Truss. And it's about strategic partnership with the UK, something that we have only with the Americans. So you're the second country that we get to have more high-level intimacy diplomacy with. And it's, it's also on the aspect of security, but also on the aspect of economy, uh, while we're trying to sign a new trade deal with the UK. So I think it shows something about the way Israel is perceived today. Israel perceived today as a country that is very relevant to most of the challenges that the world is dealing with. And I think this is why I'm so proud to be the ambassador of Israel today, because we're so relevant to many issues. And do you feel, from obviously your career, you mentioned Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs and now in your ambassador role, do you feel that Israel, is it now easier to get Israel a hearing with uh, certain governments or has that changed? Many things has changed thanks to the Abraham Accords. So I came here after historic peace agreement was signed with the Arab world and the Gulf countries were signing peace agreement with Israel. Then Morocco joined and we really hope to extend the circle of peace. So first of all, I'm coming in the name of a country that shows to the world that people that are coming from totally different areas can get together for the same goals. And it's exciting. And I can tell you that for me, the most exciting thing when I came was to meet the Arab ambassadors. And I met the Arab ambassadors of Egypt and Jordan, and also the um, Abraham Accords ambassadors. And uh, it, it was really a feeling that something new is happening in the Middle East. I want to talk about your role here in the UK, but just before we do, I wondered, um, in your experience, and we often have female politicians in the UK come on the podcast and talk about, you know, scrutiny they faced, you know, pressure in terms of doing that role. And I, I wondered for you if there was anything that stuck out because... And for example, one of the things that you got a lot of media attention for was sitting in the front of a bus where women normally had to sit at the back of it. Could you talk us through what happened there? Well, it was, um, I was fighting many times for women voice to be sound. Like uh, there was an Israeli radio station, it was a private radio station, just an example, that decided because uh, it was based on like ultra-Orthodox community, uh, women were not allowed to be interviewed. And I said, no way it's going to happen in my country because it's a democratic country and it's 50% of the population and they can be silenced. So I, I was limiting the right to broadcast without having women on, on their shows. And actually, I was one of the people that was interviewing, getting their interviews in this uh, radio show because for them, they realized it was actually a good thing. The same with the bus. Um, those were the little battles, I must say, but uh, I definitely think it makes a difference. And just before we talk about the role in the UK, I wondered, looking back on your career in politics, 
we're talking about some of the you know the work you're most proud of but what's been the toughest period for you so far Actually, here I experienced yeah, one of the most difficult things. Um, I, I know it's not going to surprise anyone, but COVID was really and extremely difficult for me as a diplomat because diplomacy is all about meeting people, and I had to Zoom, and it's not the best way to meet people or to, to create new connections. So we had a very tough year last year. Even though on a bilateral level, we did create many corporations on health, and uh, we're still doing very good things with the NHS. So I believe that it will be one of the ingredients of our bilateral relations. But on a personal level, it was really, really tough. Now, you talked about obviously moving from politics to diplomacy briefly. What's it been like for you? What have you had to change? Becoming a diplomat? Yeah. Well, it's a mindset. It's a very, very different mindset. Where in politics is is all about diverse, like be, being fighting with the other side, and you always represent your constituency and you represent a certain set of values. When you're ambassador, you represent something much bigger. You represent the whole idea of the state of Israel, which for me is is actually a good thing because I enjoy the idea that I don't need to you know fight all day long. I just come to work to do good things and to build bridges, as you mentioned in the beginning. And I really like this idea of building bridges and thinking about the positive that we can bring to the table. And in politics, it's not really positive most of the time. <laughs> and at the time of your appointment, there was some opposition. So um, I think there was a there was a protest or a petition is probably the right way to put it, which I think had a, hun- a few hundred signatures. So it was suggesting, you know, ultra right wing ambassador suggesting it was a bad idea. How, d- how did you find that? Did, did that bother you? No, because <laughs> because eventually it's um, it's the Israeli government that makes the decision who to send, and I was sent on behalf of the Israeli government, the state of Israel, and as I would say that in my record, I know that I'm I'm, I'm bringing a proven record as someone dealt many years in diplomacy and foreign affairs, and I, I knew I would do the job good, and if, the fact that we didn't have women for so many years bothered me, and I said, I'll come here and I'll prove with my actions that I'm coming here to do a diplomatic work, not a political work. And in all my interviews, I said that I'm making a shift from political life to diplomacy, and I'm coming with a different mindset. And I think people now accept that and, and respect that. And just very briefly, that we were talking a bit in advance about, you know, when I was doing the research for this the introduction, there's various things on the internet. I just wondered... It does feel as though there's lots of people who want to say you're something. And I wondered, do you think there's a media caricature that doesn't fit with who you are? I, I wondered, you know, when, when it's things like that protest, you know, saying ultra right wing and things. I wondered, how do you find that? As in, does it match you? Do you, do you find it frustrating? No, I, I must say I'm coming from the media. I love yeah. media. I think that media is the best way to outreach to as many people as possible. And I know that Politics is all about perceptions, and my job as a diplomat is to meet as many people as I can in order to break a perception. Because I'm not representing Tippi, like my own personal views. I'm representing the state of Israel, who's much bigger than me. And as, as values, I really think that the values that the state of Israel represents today very similar to the British values. We're a country that respects the rule of law really cares about equality. I think equality is a big thing in Israel. And the fact that even social mobility, I mean, think about my own biography. I'm first generation born in Israel. My parents, you know, they came from 
even undemocratic country and they build a new life in Israel and their daughter can go all the way to be a cabinet minister and an ambassador in the UK, it shows a lot about the society I'm representing. So this, those are the values I'm coming with. It's not just about me, it's really about Israel. Now, I wanted to ask you about your first impressions of the UK when you got here, but I am aware that this was in the middle of COVID. Exactly. So it might be staring at the wall of your room, but... <laughs> I can tell you how the embassy looks around my residence. The truth is I, I, I came many times to London, so at least I know how real London is like, and I didn't experience London for the first time when I came, you know. To, but but to, live, to do a relocation with a family, it is a challenging process. My daughters uh, really suffered from the fact there were a few months with no school, so they had to get their education from Netflix. So yeah, do, you have to, do you have to do homeschooling on top of your normal work? No, no, I didn't. I did, I did uh, as, as I said, uh, we, we did our best but as parents, but uh, we, we tried on, on weekends to fill, up the, to fill in the gaps, but uh, it wasn't easy, I'm sure, for many parents. But Zoom, and, and they're very small, my, my children, they're seven, five, and three, so for, for most of them, the Zoom was not a relevant tool, so... Yep. Glad it's over. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed Omicron doesn't <laughs> bring us back. Vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. I've been just been boosted, so I'm very happy. Now, just a few kind of final things. In the introduction, I mentioned LSE, and that was in the news when you went to go and speak there. Can you talk us through what happened? In the sense that you were invited to speak at LSE, but it got quite difficult once you got there. Actually, that was maybe the first event that I realized how big the gap is between my experience and the media experience. So my experience was I was invited to LSE from the student. I got an invitation from the students. I was very happy to do that. It's, of course, it's a very important academic institution. And I came and I spoke for an hour and a half with like 200 students, 50 in the room, and 150 joined us by Zoom. And they were asking so many great questions about Israel, about things that are happening with our Arab neighbors. So it was a very fascinating conversation. But I hope for the students as well, and I really enjoyed their questions. And then I went outside, and then the outside was the story. The story was the demonstration. And the demonstration was led by very, very radical people that thought that it makes sense to silent a foreign ambassador that represents a friendly country, which is something that is unacceptable, as just the British government representatives were so clear. And it went all the way up to the Prime Minister, you know, the Prime Minister Johnson, we just met him, and he said that those kind of things cannot happen in in the UK. And Priti Patel was giving me a call, the Home Secretary, and she said she will investigate this event because think about it. Does it make sense? I'm, I'm the only foreign ambassador that needs to have such a heavy protection when I go on campus. And aren't campuses all about freedom of speech and the ability of people to exchange views? That, that's the idea. And, and the fact that those groups are trying to silence a legitimate representative of a friendly country, this is something that is very disturbing. And has it put you off doing future events like that? Or oh, as, as many as possible. Yeah. No, definitely. I, I, I told the diplomat in, in our embassy that is doing um, universities and campuses, just book as many as you can because it shows that this is the place where there is a problem and we need to address it. Protesters had many reasons, but some of them took insult to reports about the previous things you allegedly said. 
I want to make, make it clear, the problem with the demonstration, people can say whatever they want about myself, I don't mind, I mean, this is freedom of speech. The problem with the demonstrators and, and the way the demonstration was, it was violent and they were calling to crash my car and they were using violent terms against a diplomat. And I wouldn't have said that they would have done the same with like representatives of even, even you know, people that are representing undemocratic countries or countries that have problems with human rights. They wouldn't have done it. The, the only country in the world that is dealing with that is Israel. And I do think it's a modern version of anti-Semitism because they delegitimize the right of Israel to exist. And it's not about policy. And it's not about me because other ambassadors experience very similar things, other Israeli ambassadors. And I think it's really about their attitude to Israel. And I'm very glad and happy that the British government was so clear that it's unacceptable. Do you think that anti-Semitism is a blind spot in the UK? I don't think it's blind anymore because people are speaking about it quite out loud. But I, am, I, I do think it's, up, it's uprising now. And in general, as a global phenomenon, it's a, it's a serious, serious problem because we need to learn from history. And we need to make sure that anti-Semitism is addressed with all its versions. One of the things, it's very easy to look at right-wing anti-Semitism. Um, as uh, Lord John Mann, that is dealing with anti-Semitism, said, for us as British, as very, it's very easy to recognize a right-wing radicalism because we fought the Nazi regime. But when it comes from the left, it's sometimes, you know, it's been, you know, covered by intellectual cover. But we can't accept any types of anti-Semitism. And we've seen just now a cultural types of anti-Semitism and theatre. So we, we need to address all types of anti-Semitism and to fight it together with the British government. And I think we have a good partner here that understands that those kind of things are hurting the British society. It's not just against Jews, it's really against everyone. Now, you've mentioned how the UK government have been very supportive. It's clear Boris Johnson wants to strengthen ties with Israel. And even this week, we've had Boris Johnson speaking at the Friends of Israel lunch, sounded a bit like a stand-up routine, um, talking about his own time in Israel, um, some of which I think I'd like to stay secret. But when it comes to Labour, I wondered, have you have you felt as though Keir Starmer is taking the issue of anti-Semitism seriously? Because under Jeremy Corbyn, very heavily criticised figure, and quite clear there was a problem. I think first first of all it's important to mention I met Keir Starmer and I was hosted by the LFA the Labour Friends of Israel just lately in the big lunch and the atmosphere was 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 different for the Jewish community there was a big concern and for us as well about the anti-Semites that uh, were out loud there in, in Labour Party. And it's definitely clear that Keir Starmer is making the best he can in order to make sure that it won't be part of the atmosphere anymore. But there, it's a process. It's not a thing that can happen in one day. And I think one of the, the signs that I've seen that um, they understand where the red line goes is where um, the LSE event happened and then Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandi were both condemning the protesters and I felt it was more of a consensus thing that those things are undone so I can feel the the change in 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 the way the Labour parties are acting at the moment but speaking from the Jewish community perspective that I can hear the voices I must say that they all say there is a big process to go through now, one of the areas where the UK and Israel are working closely is when it comes to Iran, with uh, comments and agreement this week about trying to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. We often hear, you know, from politicians in Israel, uh, Iran is close, but is it different this time? What's good about our cooperation with the UK government that 
the UK government understands the Iranians are not here to cooperate and uh, they understand that we are in a very crucial point in history where we need to put all options on the table in order to stop Iran. And the Vienna talks are, uh, from my perspective, from the Israeli perspective, just a way for the Iranians to buy time and time works for, for their own benefit in order to move faster on the nuclear program. And we want to make sure that the Vienna talks won't be the only thing on the table, but we will have more options. And your foreign secretary was saying it loud and clear on the press conference she had with our foreign minister that Iran should be stopped and all options are on the table. So we believe that we see things in the same way. Um, now, the final question I wanted to ask you is one that we ask everyone in this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever received? My worst advice? Yeah, the worst advice. That, that you've been given and you could have ignored it, you could have taken it on board and then thought, why did I do that? I, I want to give you an example of advice I didn't take. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, um, yeah, of course. Well, before I went into politics, so there was a group of people dominated by men. Even even so, it's not, it's not about uh, gender, but they really said you're too young to get into politics. And just in general, I'm saying to all women in the world, there is no such thing as too young or whatever. When you've been given an opportunity or when you feel it's the right time, it is the right time. And I really think that life gives you few times opportunities to make a difference and make a change. And you need to take them and not to think, when is the best time to do it? Because there is not a really such a thing as the best time. Because some people will say, when I will have enough experience. When I will... No, I think experience is what is made from doing the work that you love for your people. And I, you had many young prime ministers. And um, we used to have a very young prime minister. Um, Netanyahu was elected when he was 46. So all I'm saying, there is no connection between how old you are or what, what you bring into the table is basically your personality, your skills, and your ideology. And it's very, very important that people want back off, especially women, uh, and want to wait to the right time. There is no right time. Thank you, Ambassador, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.